Please be seated and take out your Bibles and turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, continuing our series Rooted in Redemption in the book of Ruth. It's so good to see all of you. I'm glad to be able to gather to worship with you. I know we've got quite a few folks online this morning, and we welcome you as well. And we're thankful to be able to continue to connect with you there. And so we're grateful to be able to worship. We're going to read the first 12 verses together of Ruth chapter 4, and then we're going to dig through it and see what God has to say to us today about our true Redeemer. Continuing in this study, we begin in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pray together. Lord, we pause before your word, recognizing that in many ways we're so distant from the cultural realities, the pictures that are here. But Lord, you desire to speak to us through this word about the nearness of our true Redeemer, his willingness and rejoicing to give us his name. Lord, I pray that as we hear these words, Lord, that you would speak deeply into our lives and you would draw us into deeper participation in your kingdom 
In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we don't think about the significance of names all that much anymore. Names are sort of like designer labels these days, right? You can probably think of some of the strange celebrity names that you've heard, you know, people give to their children. And, uh, you know, people don't really think a whole lot about the significance of names. Uh, But in many ways, names are one of the ways in which even now today, families perpetuate the memory of their loved ones. As I reflected on our own life, we have four kids, and in some way, every one of their names is a way of perpetuating and remembering the name of someone else. My oldest, Haley, she's 16, and her name is actually my wife's maiden name. It's their family name, and so it's a way of remembering my wife's family in the name of our oldest daughter. Our second daughter, Darcy, is named after a friend of my wife's who passed away suddenly in a car accident. And it was a way of memorializing the impact that her life had had on my wife. Darcy's middle name is my grandmother's middle name. uh, Something that my grandmother takes great value in and reminds her of often. Then there's Gracie. Gracie was born with a congenital heart defect and we knew that we were going to need a great deal of grace. And so we just asked the Lord for grace with her name. But even her middle name is connected to a family friend. And then we were sitting there in the uh, delivery room all out of names when we had our fourth daughter. I don't know if you had this experience, but most of us haven't gathered up a long list of names. And because we didn't have any boys, I had a stack of boy names and we were all out of girl names and we were writing them on the whiteboard as my wife was in labor trying to figure out what are we going to name this child? And we, Penelope has no family significance. But her middle name, her middle name does. Her middle name is actually, she shares with my mom. You think about that, I, you know, I thought about it this week, you know, when I was, I was ready to say, we don't think names are all that significant, but even here in, in our own practices as a family, and you might be able to go back into yours, you can see ways in which Names have been given to perpetuate the name of someone significant. Well, here, in this passage, you'll see that names play a significant role. In fact, they are the kind of organizing idea of the passage. In verse 5, we see that, that the taking of Ruth as a wife, in addition to redeeming the land, is an expectation that... Boaz underlines an expectation in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Something in a moment we'll talk about the fact that this nearer kinsman, this nearer redeemer refuses to do. To perpetuate the name. But when Boaz wants to declare later the significance of why he has been willing to function as a redeemer for the land and for Ruth and Naomi... He says that they are witnesses, the people standing there are witnesses about them perpetuating, verse 10, the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. He's concerned about someone else's name. And that brings me kind of the central idea I want to think about as we are here, that the true redeemer in this passage bears the cost 
to secure another's name and promised inheritance from God. The true redeemer is willing to bear the cost to secure another's name and their promised inheritance. Now, we, I want to, kind of, to be able to really understand and appreciate that, we need to do what we've done the last couple of weeks is, and jump into the background that we see uh, that really plays into this text. If we're going to understand why there's this connection between inheritance and name and land and why they even care about this, we're going to have to do some thinking. Aren't there all sorts of cultural customs going on in here that just seem strange to us? Can we acknowledge that? I mean, I'm even uncomfortable with the use of the terminology of buying and selling for a wife, right? We can acknowledge that, right? It is in the Word. And, you know, from our vantage point, we can easily judge an old, older culture, or we, we bring things to the table that maybe weren't intended to be communicated there. There's a recognition of the care and financial ownership of people who are vulnerable in this situation, especially a widow, and the right to... Uh, raise up a redeeming land that's here and there's a lot going on that brings that language to the table but there's all sorts of other customs aren't there that make us sort of scratch our head well one of them is why they care so much about perpetuating the name and connecting that to the land I want to try to explain that to you because it has significance the people of Israel saw the portions of land that they had as a heritage from God and a promise Land is a portion, it's a, it's a tactile portion of God's promise to them as a people. In Genesis 12 through 17, if you were to read that section, beginning in chapter 12, we see that Abraham, their father, and our father in the faith was promised a few things from God. He was promised that he would have descendants as numerous as stars in the sky and sands in the seashore. And that God would grant him land... And make his name great. And through this blessing we are told. Not only would he receive the blessing of having his name made great. And having land. And having an inheritance. And, and descendants to pass it on to. But God through that family would, would return his blessing to all nations. All nations would be blessed through Abraham. And it was all connected to this promise. So Abraham goes and dwells in the land by faith. Because it's there where God has promised to bless him. Later when God brought his people out of Egypt, he renewed Abraham's promise and sent them into this land. He sent them into the land, we often refer to it as the promised land. Sometimes the land of Canaan. He sends them into the land and when the land is distributed to the people, it's distributed by name of the tribes of Israel. Those who were descendants of the direct recipient, the direct recipients of God's promise of salvation. The 12 tribes of Israel really represent the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are given this covenant promise from God that he will bless them and through them bring the seed of salvation, a descendant. And so, here they are, living in the land is an act of trust and faith that God will fulfill his promise. And it's also actually a way of saying, look what promise God has already fulfilled. So, 
When the land was distributed to the people, they were assigned portions as from God in conjunction with their family name. And the attachment of the name in the land as an inheritance was a way of saying that God had kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that their family was included by name in that promise. Now this whole process, that's why, you know, it's sort of strange to us. Why why are they so concerned about this family line continuing and passing it on with the names? Because all those names are important to God. They're a part of his promised people. So here's part of what it says. This whole process of caring about inheritance and land that we see in the book of Ruth was a way of trusting in the remainder of God's promise to be delivered to his people by name. It wasn't just a general promise. And also, it wasn't good enough for one Israelite to thrive in the promised land that God had promised to them and to maintain a stake in God's promises. They were to be concerned about every name that dwelt among them. So much so that if someone didn't have an an inheritor to pass their land off to, they were instructed to do things about that. To perpetuate their name. They were to be concerned about every name. And this picture of redemption and keeping the name attached to the inheritance was a way of trusting God's promise and caring about seeing it delivered to every family, not just one. And that became particularly important when a family was in danger, when a family was vulnerable, that their kinsmen were to perpetuate their name, their inheritance, their line. So the near relatives were to be concerned about one another. This isn't about individualism getting to the finish line, but them caring by imitating God's redeeming love about bringing everyone into God's promises. This is what's being pictured. So when you hear land and inheritance and raising up a name, you should think God's promise being trusted in for this family To do this, to act in the way that we've been talking about, the way Boaz shows here, is a way of saying, I trust God's promise even if it costs me. It's symbolic but important. It's a pattern of redemption and remembering that your own land is a gift, an inheritance from the Lord and not your own. So if you can act as a redeemer for others, you should. Acting as a redeemer was about paying the cost, bearing the cost to secure another's name and promise inheritance so that's the big idea that's going on here that's why we celebrate what Boaz is doing but we see that worked out then in two ways that that can teach us some things particularly the first way we see it worked out is in verses one through six where we see the reluctant redeemer is concerned about his own name and ends up nameless if you're taking notes that's point number one the reluctant redeemer is concerned about his own name And ends up nameless. In verses 1 through 6, we see that the action picks up where chapter 3 left off. If you remember, it wasn't Boaz's motivation. It was Ruth's motivation to go out and get this process started. She went to him by night, took all the risks, and uh, and said, marry me, right? And and he he said he's willing to be a redeemer of that household and to marry her and take care of Naomi and her, but also to perpetuate their family members' names and pass their inheritance on to their children. She says, marry me. And we see, though, that Boaz goes right away to begin preparing the way for Ruth and Naomi to be cared for. 
He goes out to the city gate. There's a sense here in the passage that God is at work in these circumstances. Now, the city gate was where all public business took place. Think about Bethlehem as a fairly small town. You know, this is like the justice of the peace. All right? This is where you go to make sure business is legalized. This is the notary public of the town of Bethlehem. The way they would do it is they would gather together some witnesses that could sit publicly, hear a decision be made, and could bear witness to the fact that a legal proceeding had taken place and things could move forward. So we see Boaz going to make sure that legally, by the law, that Ruth and Naomi are done right, are done right by them, by the whole town. So there's a sense here in the passage, though, that they're not alone. God is at work in the circumstances because it just so happens that at that moment in the morning at the city gate where all this business takes place, along comes the man who is the nearest kinsman of Naomi in Bethlehem. Now, if you remember from our story, Boaz is some sort of a distant relative, right? He's related to the family, able to act as a redeemer, but he isn't nearest to them. I want to say, here we find somebody who's nearer than Boaz. And it says something about this man. Let's talk about him for a minute. It says something about this man from the beginning that he's aloof to the situation of Naomi. Again, Bethlehem's not a big place. He's the nearest relative and knows nothing about Naomi's condition or Ruth's situation, does nothing in the town to make sure that they're taken care of. We haven't heard about him in their destitution. He's their nearest relative and he's nowhere to be found. But Boaz presents it to him first with regard to the benefit, we see, of acquiring the right of redemption in regards to the land. He says, hey, Naomi's getting rid of the land. You can act as a redeemer for that land. Buy it back into the family. And he's interested, isn't he? He's like, that sounds like a deal. Now you've got to understand, this is about building the portfolio. Land is valuable. He's thinking, now I can add to my inheritance that I pass on. I can add to my name. And he's concerned. He's like, hey, I'm going to take this opportunity. And he says, of course. He's happy to do it. He's interested. And you should understand that this would be a good benefit for someone. He's expanding his own portion and gaining a greater inheritance for his descendants and family and for his name. But when it becomes clear that Ruth is involved... And caring for Ruth and Naomi by marrying Ruth is the right thing to do by the instruction of the law and by their local practices. And that there's a responsibility to marry her and raise up a son who would actually be the one who really was the inheritor of Elimelech's inheritance and would, would perpetuate a new family line, it, he realizes it's costly and risky to him. Maybe you can't get inside that, but here, essentially, his estate becomes split by the first son and the second son. That's what's going on. This older son, the first one that would be born to Ruth, would actually receive the inheritance that belonged to Naomi, her husband, her sons, and it would go on down through there, and he wouldn't have much influence on it in the long run. And then there's a the question of whether he would have two sons for his own family line in his own name. And there's a lot behind that, but we get the sense right away in the text that he's like, no, 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 no. If that's the case, I'm out. It's like Shark Tank, right? I'm out. I don't want that deal. Well, presented with that information, he says, I'm out. 
you can fulfill the responsibility if you like, but I'm going to protect what's mine. That's the way he says it. I mean, when you think about what he says in the text. It's like, i got to worry about my own name. I can't be worrying about this family. Now remember, he's his nearest relative. <laughs> I can't be worried about them. And he makes a decision to protect his own name. Now I just want to point out that this is not an honorable thing to do. You see, what happens is, it, it, there, there's one more symbol in here that tells us that this is not an honorable thing. At this point in history... When we're reading Ruth and when it's happening, we see this symbolism of to make it official that he wasn't willing to pay the cost to redeem and he wasn't willing to marry Ruth. He takes off his shoe. Now at this point it had become, at this time in Ruth, an empty custom. But deeper in Old Testament history, it was a way of saying, I'm not willing to pay the price for my family. And it was a shame to take off the shoe. But it had become a way of attesting that he wouldn't do it. You're, you're neglecting this. <laughs> you're taking off your shoe and you're passing it on. It's someone else's problem now. Because the nearest relative wasn't interested. So we see that he makes a decision and the way it comes from him is to protect his own name. Here's the irony. And here's what I want us to see. By making his life about himself. Do you see what happens? Zoom out for a second. By making his life about himself and not about the Lord's promises coming to be enjoyed by others. He misses out on having a name in the story of God's redemption. What's his name, by the way? He's nobody. He's the one that isn't counted in the family line of King David. (laughs) He's the one who missed the chance to be a part of the family line of Jesus the Redeemer. He's the one that said, I'll protect my name. I'm not worried about their name and shut it all down. And by protecting his own name, he misses out on this amazing participation in God's redeeming story that's not just happening for Ruth, but it's happening for all of us. (laughs) To put it plainly, in the words of the passage, participation, and this is true for us, And it was true for him. Participation in God's redeeming story happens as we surrender our name for the sake of others having theirs established in eternity. When we are willing to surrender our name, our identity, our hope, our security, so that others may be secured and perpetuated for eternity, then we're making the kind of name that glorifies Jesus, otherwise we'll just be forgotten. At the end of history, the things that we protect will determine whether we're remembered. You know, we're so concerned with being remembered in the here and now. We're so concerned with the way that we'll be perceived and making an identity for ourselves and so often full of ambition about making a name for ourselves. We're often concerned about making a name for our churches and for our denominations and for our organizations. And and, and the truth is, the way of Jesus says the best way for us to make sure that we are a part of what's worth being remembered is to lay our name down. When we stop worrying about our name and we worry about God's name being exalted and others' names included in his family, we step into our first moment of greatness in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we make a name for ourselves by concerning ourselves with having others named among the people of God. 
So we see the reluctant redeemer is concerned about his own name. He ends up nameless. But then we see the righteous redeemer, pictured here in Boaz, puts his name on the line for another's promise. He puts his name on the line so that others can enjoy and inherit the promise. Look at it in the text, verse 7, what he cares about. Well, with the possible other redeemer now out of the way, he goes through this legal proceeding. Since he's unwilling, the nameless person is unwilling to gain the land this way, Boaz makes it public that he will act as a redeemer of the land. He will become a husband for Ruth. This is getting the legal marriage license. Notice a couple things. He comes, and to do so, he publicly fulfills the intent and spirit of the law. He is redeeming back his near family, their land out of destitution. He's returning hope in God to them. He's marrying Ruth. A dead family tree will become alive again. That's the picture. A dead family tree will be brought to life because the Redeemer acted. That's what's happening here in this passage. But in witnessing this moment, you have these these people brought together to be witnesses to this. And what are they witnessing? They're witnessing something significant that we shouldn't miss. They're witnessing Boaz give himself to the task of securing and remembering the promise of inheritance for someone else's name. They're witnessing Boaz taking his name, his resources... His life in giving it so that another man's name can be remembered. And another family can be reminded that they have a portion in God's promise. It's all about that for Boaz. They're witnessing Boaz give himself to the, the task of securing this promise for the family of Elimelech. And Malon and Naomi and Ruth. Before He concerns himself with his own. It's an act of faith and sacrifice while trusting in the promise of God. It's in contrast to the guy that went before him. And notice how the writer wants us to hear from Boaz in his own words what his motivation is. At the end of verse 10, we're told that Boaz does this to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. That they would be continued to be named among the families and people of God. This is what he does. This act has faith and loving kindness written all over it. The result is that, you know, this is the amazing thing. Don't miss this because this is what we're to see. The result is that Boaz's name becomes enshrined in the lineage of David. Boaz has his name remembered because he concerned himself with somebody else's name. And his name is remembered, as we find out, in the lineage. David becomes a direct descendant of this promise, this union. But it's not just in David's line, but in the lineage of Jesus, the true Redeemer. The name of Boaz is remembered while others is forgotten. Have you thought about the fact that we've spent the last four weeks talking about Boaz? 
We spent several weeks, 3,100 or more years ago, this man made a decision that seemed insignificant and small to trust God by faith, to care about someone else's name and hope being secured. And today, 3,100 years later, we're still talking about it. It's amazing. Another thousand years would go by after he's named in David's lineage. And God's full promise of sending a redeemer would be realized. And at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, in verse 5, we see the names. The names through which God has preserved the promise. And right there in the middle of the names, you see, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, and it goes on and on and on until we see Jesus. It's an amazing thing. But you know what's even more significant? Yes, you know what? How do we gain the motivation we need to take the step of faith of laying our lives down like Boaz did here? How do we get that? Well, actually, if we look close at the genealogy, I think we get a hint at it. Boaz displays grace because he's been a part of a longer story of grace. If you know much about the genealogy, it actually says this before we get to who Boaz fathers. It says, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And on and on down to David. Did you catch that? Boaz is the child of Rahab and Salmon. I mean, what's the big deal? Who's Rahab? Who's Rahab? Rahab's in Jericho, right? We gotta rewind a couple generations. And I, I think it's I think it's reasonable to understand that this means direct descendant here. It might not be like mom's, you know, Rahab's not still living in town at the time in Bethlehem. But directly descended from that marriage is Boaz. He's Rahab's boy. <laughs> you know what that means? God took Rahab out of the middle of Jericho, and because of her faith to protect the spies. He saved her and brought her into the family of the people of God. I mean, the, we could kind of go on into the details. She was a prostitute, right? Living in Jericho. Nothing really to her name. No hope for the future. Not likely to be married. <laughs> and yet, when those spies were there, preparing for that city to be given over to the people of Israel... They're under threat, and she says, come on in here. I know that that God you serve is the true God. I'm going to put my hope in him. She hides the spies, puts them up on the roof, helps them get out by the window. You remember all that? And they say, listen, we're going to make a promise to you. By faith, you'll be rescued. Because of what you've done, you'll be rescued. Put a scarlet thread down out of your window, and when the time comes, we're going to get you out of this city and bring you into the family. She's rescued out of there, and she's saved from that situation, and before long, she's married into the family, and she is Boaz's mom, grandmother, great-grandmother, whatever. This is his story. 
That means the inheritance that Boaz has been tending to is entirely a work of God's grace. That what Boaz received previously had been, uh, been a gift of God's grace because of the salvation of Rahab and the bringing together of this family. That, that grace is the story of Boaz long before it's the practice of Boaz. You see, we become willing to, by faith, live out a story of grace when we realize that long before we're called to practice grace for the sake of others, long before we're called to lay our lives down and step out of faith and live for another person's name, God has already poured out His grace mercifully on us. God performs his redeeming work as an act of grace. This is what we learn. It's not an act of wisdom on our part, of achievement, of getting it right all the time, but trusting in the saving, redeeming work of God. Boaz displays grace because he has a story of grace. And listen, you'll never sacrifice anything important about yourself while you believe that you have secured your situation, while you believe that you have to secure your hope for the future. The change that brings us into the kingdom of God is the change from believing that we have any merit or ability to put us there in the first place. Boaz is in the people and family of God. Boaz has his own inheritance because God was gracious to his family. And when you trust God as the giver of salvation and hope, then you trust God when you're called to be a distributor of his grace. That's the story here. Jesus put it this way. In his kingdom, freely you have received. Freely give. You know, Boaz makes an act of faith, and in many ways, Jesus goes on to say that the same way that Boaz finds his life in his name is the same way as disciples, we find life in the kingdom of God. We find life by surrender, by losing ourselves. Unless the grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains alone. Jesus said, unless you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you won't find it. But when we're willing... And we realize we have no name to make for ourselves. That the only hope we have for the future has been secured by Jesus Christ earning our inheritance for us. Dying to pay for our sins and purchase us back from our sin. And delivering that inheritance to us as a promise, as our Redeemer. When we realize that, then we can have all the security that we need to take steps of faith and difficult obedience in our life. You see, your future acts of faith, listen, are rooted in the past provisions of grace. And for some of us, what we need to do, if we're ever going to be deeply used by God, we've got to go back into our story and rid it of our boasting. We've got to go back into the story of our past until we see it as a narrative of God's kindness and grace. Until we realize that the only way that we are secure in the kingdom of God isn't because we've been good enough isn't because we provided for ourselves, isn't because of our own stability, but because of God's kindness. And our only hope for the future, your only hope for future security, for an eternity beyond the grave, is in what God has done through Christ, not what you will do for God. That's the gospel. 
you have a redeemer. <laughs> a redeemer that has bought your inheritance. <laughs> and wants to welcome you into his family and pour out his blessing. The free, undeserved reception of the kindness of God is the inheritance you don't deserve but has been given to you anyway. That's the, the good news that we celebrate here this morning. Freely, I have received. Listen, I, I just want to ask you, can you look back on your story, on your life, and is it a celebration of God's grace? When you think about your life in this moment, do you speak of God's grace? Do you think... The reason I'm where I'm at today, the reason I can have hope isn't because of what I'm doing or the decisions I'm making, but because of the kindness of God. Then you've begun to understand. Then you're trusting by faith, not in yourselves or works, but in what the one greater than Boaz, the greater Redeemer, brings to us. You see, Boaz is just pointing us forward to the one that would come and who did come. Jesus, who purchases our freedom purchases our hope and gives us our inheritance and name. You see, our story is that we were given life by God. Like the prodigal son, we squandered our inheritance. We lived for our own name and not for the glory and name of the Lord. And when he, we had spent all that we had and our sin had cost more than we wanted to pay, the Lord sent us a Redeemer. That Redeemer was the son of Boaz. Long after Boaz trusted the Lord by faith, his faith turned to our joy because Jesus was born in that little town of Bethlehem. There in that same place at the city gates, Jesus was born in that town. God sent his son. God had a son with a greater inheritance who was willing not just to live for his name, but to live so that we might inherit by grace what we had forfeited through sin. And Jesus, the Bible tells us, went to the cross. He was despised. His name was ridiculed and mocked. Though he was rich, he had become poor for our sake. The one who dwelt in the glories of heaven with a deserving inheritance and a name that was celebrated stooped down and became a servant. He was poured out even unto death. And if we take the words of Isaiah 53, he was cut off from the land of the living as one who was cursed and deserving of no inheritance, but he was the one who had the keys to hell and death and would bring us marching behind him. And we come to rejoice that God, the Father who created the world, has an inheritance that he delivers to those who trust him by faith. And through the perfect faith of his Son displayed for us on the cross, we become beneficiaries of all that Jesus Jesus has accomplished and you can have hope today to be forgiven of your sin to have hope for the future so that you know that you're a part of the people of God and your name can be written in the book of life that stands for all eternity because of what Jesus has done he did it all so that we could be counted among the people of God just humanly speaking God took our dead family tree and in Christ raised it to life. He raised it to life. For all those who will trust this promise. He's delivered to, to us freely in Christ our Redeemer. He is our Redeemer. You have a Redeemer for your name. You have a Redeemer who is concerned about your name. 
He's not a reluctant redeemer who cares about the cost. He gave it freely, but he has come to make sure your name is counted among the families of the people of God. You have a redeemer. And today, if you don't know personally that God loves you and desires for you to be bought out of wherever your sin has dragged you, you can be free, you can have hope, and you can know him personally because you have a redeemer in Jesus Christ. But listen, your loved ones have a redeemer. They have a redeemer, every one of them by name. A redeemer who can give hope in life to them if they'll trust him by faith. And are you willing, like Boaz, to bear the cost that they might know of the name of Jesus, that their names might have hope in eternity? You know, your loved ones have a redeemer. Our neighbors around us in Dumfries, in Quantico, in Stafford, in Woodbridge, they have a name and they have a redeemer. Those neighbors who you don't know the name of, God calls us to lay down our life, our resources, our time, our energy, so that their name might be perpetuated in eternity. And I wonder whether you're like the reluctant redeemer we saw in this story, unwilling to pay the cost so that others might be named among the people of God. But listen, they have a redeemer The nations of this world have a redeemer. Today, around the world, there will be people who will step out into eternity not knowing the name of our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, without hope, living in the kind of despair that Naomi has. And they don't know that they have a redeemer. Will you be the one who bears witness that there's a redeemer? Not just in Bethlehem. Not just in Israel. Not just in Dumfries. But until the day that the glory of God in the name of Jesus fills the earth, we're to carry the name of our Redeemer to the peoples of this world. But it comes with a cost. Are we willing to be a people who pay the cost? The question we have to answer this morning is whether we're willing to have our lives laid down and used up so that the name of Jesus can be exalted and others' names be secured. For all eternity. Will you give your name. Your life. Your title. Your hope. Your future. So that the name of Jesus can be made great. And others can be counted in his family. And rejoice. In an eternal inheritance that never fades. This is the hope of the good news. This is. The royal redeemer that Boaz points us to. And it's who we worship and celebrate and rejoice in today. May we be willing to lay down our lives so that others may know his name. Let's pray.